Welcome to Notes from America. My name is Petrina Engelke, and frankly, I had no idea how much the land shapes the people who live there. I learned that while I tried to wrap my head around the wilderness, of all things, the great American outdoors. When I researched the idea behind the great American outdoors and the history of national parks, one little detail struck me. American gems like Yosemite National Park or Grand Canyon National Park, in historical sources about those places, I often found terms like pristine wilderness or untouched nature. Untouched? Come on. While I'm doing this podcast to make sense of the US and learn about this country, it's not like I don't know anything about this country. I do know that my fellow Europeans' ancestors didn't come to a continent void of human presence. In other words, people have lived in America for thousands of years, and that includes what we now know as the Great American Outdoors. These places were the homes of many different peoples. So I dug out a few stories about what happened to them when their homes were turned into national parks in the 1800s so that I could tell those stories in my German podcast Notizen aus Amerika. And, of course, I was also curious about the present. And that part is today's interview in Notes from America. In a second, you'll hear Angel Teddetin, who is a Navajo hiking guide in Arizona, among other things. I'll feature a few links to her work in the show notes, so you can not only hear about the beautiful landscapes she talks about, but also look at them. In this interview, which we did in early September, Angel mentions a particular part of U.S. and Navajo history that today is known as the Long Walk. Since some of you might not have heard about it, let me try and summarize what happened before we start the interview. Just like other indigenous peoples in America, the Navajo were forced from their homes. But unlike most of the others, they came back. Around the year 1864, European Americans started a so-called ethnic cleansing, destroying the Navajo's homes, livestock and food sources and forced them on a 400-mile-long march under the most cruel conditions – And that march is known today as the Long Walk. Then U.S. soldiers put the surviving Navajo in an internment camp that lacked basic food and sanitation requirements, causing so many problems that the government eventually acknowledged its failure. Under a new treaty, the surviving Navajo were free to walk back to an area smaller than their original home, much smaller, but within that region that was surrounded by four mountains that are sacred to them. That's the very short summary of this part of American history, and if you want to know more, look into The Long Walk, and there's also a lot of literature and people talking about the history of the Navajo Nation. That area that I've been talking about is also where quite a lot of Navajo live today. And with this in mind... Imagine red sandstone, the Colorado River, and the canyons that the water of this river and other rivers carved into the landscape over more years than we can imagine. 
That's where we start the interview, at least in our minds. Well, in my mind, Angel actually lives there. Joining me now is Angel Teddyton. She is a hiking guide and an ambassador for women who hike in Arizona. And she is Navajo and also the creator of Adventurous Natives on Instagram. That's a place where Native Americans can share their outdoor stories. So, Ms. Teddyton, welcome to Notes from America. Hello. So we're talking in September after Labor Day weekend, and I know that you just completed a hike in one of the most famous landscapes of the U.S. You went to Grand Canyon rim to rim, and that sounds pretty awesome. Uh, how do you plan and prepare for such a hike? The planning was really hard on this one because of all the COVID restrictions that are happening A lot of logistics had to be figured out, but just the preparing for it um, was also, I just had to hike every weekend. I actually had hoped to start a real like running program so I could really do well, <laughs> but that didn't really work out. So I just, you know, hiked every weekend and tried to work out every other day. But it was hard to plan this one because the reservation was closed, the Navajo reservation. And so we had to drive a lot more hours to get to where we needed to be. And we didn't expect it to be so hot, too. So that was hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it was what? It was 115? 15, yeah. Okay, that is really, really hot. Did you ever consider canceling the hike? We didn't consider canceling it. We did consider not doing the north rim to the south rim. We were thinking, okay, if worse gets to worse, we'll just do North Kaibab, which is in the south rim, and then come up Bright Angel, which is also the south. So we just stay on one rim side. But we've backpacked that before. So we're just like, no, we need to really do north to south. And so we just stuck with it. And I'm glad we did because it was awesome. Would you do it again? Oh, yes. So my sister is actually planning one for November, which I'm super excited about because the heat won't be there. And so I should be able to do way better. What does doing good or better mean in terms of hiking? Is it about how fast you are or about how you feel? What does it mean? Better to me is both of those things. Like when you feel good, your your hiking is going to be quicker anyway. But I did not feel good. I definitely got heat sickness for sure. I had a mild headache. And finally, when I got to the top of the other side, I actually threw up, you know, so it was like, whoa, that was a little too toasty. Wow. <laughs> toasty is a way to <laughs> describe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and as you mentioned, you had a couple of people with you and you very often now um, hike with other women. What inspired you to do that and then later become a member and even an ambassador for women who hike? So I grew up with brothers and then I, I got married. So a lot of my hiking has just been with guys. And my husband has a really good friend that he goes on hikes with. 
and they do pretty tough stuff. So I was like, I need a tough group of my own, you know, like women only kind of thing. And I decided to look for that. And I was like, I'm going to find a group of women because I just hiked with mostly guys or my family. And I just went online on Facebook and Instagram and found a couple of different women groups. And I started to go on those group hikes. And so that's kind of how I started hiking with other women. But before that, though, I would do my own little group hikes for my town and just invite anyone I played like softball or volleyball with. And it was actually hard to get people to go with me, though. They were just kind of, I don't know, they kind of timid, I think, or they were just like, why? Why would I? Why would I do that if I could like drive it? I don't know. They just seemed kind of like, no, thanks. So I kind of had that drive to have my own woman group anyway before I sought out one. Um, But it just totally helped to to know that there was women groups out there anyway, and I could join it. What now that you've done it a couple of times and you have the comparison hiking with your brothers or your husband or hiking with an all women group, what's the difference? Um, The difference, I feel like it's just when you're hiking with women, One huge thing, is it's funny, is like, if I say, take a picture of me to any of the guys I hike, it's like, ugh, you know? But when you hike with women, everyone's there for like smiles and pictures and you just enjoy each other's company. And the conversations you have on the trail are so familiar to you because we're all women. And I feel like when I hike with women, it becomes more about our conversation and what we're doing together than getting to somewhere. When I hike with my husband or like any of the guys, it's really about let's push it. Let's get to the end. It's really about conquering the trail. When really when I hike with women, it's about the relationships and also conquering a trail. But you know, that that little piece is awesome. Yeah, that sounds great. Makes me want to go out, not in 150 degrees. So no, no. <laughs> Um, have these hiking experiences, I mean, you've been doing it for a while now, has that changed anything in your life or in your views? I definitely say it has, because I feel like a lot of times we get thrown into situations where we just end up hating a lot of things. But when you hike, you're thrust into that. Like say you're super out of shape, right? And you decide to go on this trail and all you can think about is how much you don't like it. And then when you get to the top of a summit or you get to your waterfall or something awesome that that trail was supposed to get you to, you just can remember and reflect on, wow, it was all worth it. And when you apply that to your everyday life, it helps get through so hard times and it helps you to be appreciative and have like great gratitude for everything you go through. Yeah. Also notice that when I when you hear reports or you know people tell you about their hike or you read in the magazines, what they often stress is overcoming difficulties and and also tell that they these were really transformative moments. That totally makes sense. Of course, you overcome something and then you are maybe a different person. But do you also experience less dramatic moments which still move you or change you? 
Definitely. Sometimes I just go on a small day hike that doesn't require much like elevation gain or anything. So it's just like a a stroll, you know, but even those I feel like change your views or give you a kind of like a reflection on things. And so hiking does that for me also, that it kind of brings you down to just this tiny piece I am grateful for. Yeah. That I can relate to from taking strolls. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it also gives yeah. me like good time to think, you know? A lot of times we're just so bombarded with so many things, but when you're just taking a walk, you're not looking at a screen, you're actually looking at your world, you're actually breathing this air, you know, it's just, I don't know, it just, I feel like it brings you down to the foundation, you know, kind of tears away all that other stuff. Yeah. Now, I also want to talk a little bit about you being Navajo and things that you know that I have never heard about. For instance, the, the Colorado River, which shaped the Grand Canyon, um, I learned that that is important to the Navajo people in many ways. Can you talk a little bit about what this river means in Navajo culture and history and maybe also how it was or is used by Navajo who live close to it? Yeah, you're right. The Colorado River is super sacred. It's in not only Navajo history and culture, all the tribes that are from the area They all have an origin story or legend that connects to the Colorado River. And through those stories, every single one of these tribes feels the Colorado River is what brought life to the area. And if you think about it, just in not even like a, a cultural or legend history, water does is the source of how we get all our living areas and that's how cities are built. It has to have a water source. And so It does. It gives like life to this whole region. It is definitely important. There's a lot of stories about it. A lot of families visit it to either give offerings to it or to pray by it because it's that big of a a power, you know. So there are origin stories and it can be part of the culture. And is there also some, some practical things, you know, things that you, if you live close to that particular river that Navajo do, or is it, you know, maybe there is no difference. You're just living close to a river. We may like just go through life living next to a river, but really the, The historical part of it, we all know and all know how important it is. And it's something that's passed down to families. And I feel like right now with the outdoors being kind of like a big part of everybody trying to get out and be active, a lot of stories are being brought back up. So it's almost like nowadays we're all reclaiming these legends and these areas that were important to our great grandparents. So it's really awesome. Um, let me tell you a little bit about my observation in regards to indigenous lands and public land, because I'm from Germany, so I come here and look at stuff, and then I get excited about it or interested, and then I try to make sense of it. So I'm going to first tell you what I see and then ask you about how you see this, okay? Okay. <laughs> so um, places like Canyon de Chez, 
or Monument Valley are on tribal land, which makes visitors aware of their history at least a little bit. And it also brings resources to the tribes. And then there are other places from Grand Canyon to Yosemite to Yellowstone that have been turned into national parks. And at the time, that meant that people were forced to leave that area for good. So the way I see it, all these beautiful places are accessible to everyone, yes, and that's great, but still they are on stolen land. So um, what would you consider a good way to deal with this part of history f for the great American outdoors? Yeah, so I'd have to agree that definitely a lot of tribes were removed to create these places. But a great way, and I feel like it's happening, to recognize these lands is to do a land recognition. And I feel like they're being pushed right now to include tribes in anything that happens on these, I don't know, National Park or BLM, like all these other things are trying to add the native piece to it, which is long overdue, but it's great that they're actually doing it now, the never, you know, and, and it's hard. Like, I feel like a lot of Native Americans that I've hiked with or spoke about this with, it's hard to live in both worlds as a Native American. You live in a world where like everything was stolen, but I still love the outdoors. I love Yosemite. Like that's a beautiful place. And I'm so glad that that tribe there kept that place beautiful. And so it just leaves you in this awkward place where you're just like, man, it was all taken, but man, I'm grateful it's being preserved, you know? So I'm kind of like in this like awkward place where you're both upset, but grateful. So I'm very grateful right now that they're actually pushing the land recognition or getting a diversity panel or including the tribes that were in that area into any changes or their history um, that they need to, you know, put on display. Yeah, right. Uh, telling Native American stories about the places has also not really been a big thing in national parks so far. Do you see any changes there? I do. I do see that change. I remember it going to like national parks or just state parks as a kid and never hearing anything about the tribes that lived there, you know? And now I feel like there's this push now to, that's the first thing you should know. And then, then the rest of everything. I mean, it's still far from being a number one information, but it's better than it was, I feel. And then there are also always plans f for for the land. Let's get back to the area, you know, where you're from, Arizona. Um, what do you think about ideas like building an escalator in Grand Canyon or a dam in Little Colorado River? Yeah, so those two are big where I'm from. And of course, we're totally against it. <laughs> the tribe or a lot of um, family members that I have are like actively part of groups to not let these two things happen. But I'm always one of those that kind of step back and see why or who and when these things happen. And so the escalator in Grand Canyon, 
there was actually a group of Navajos that were for that, to add that. And I could see it because the Navajo nation isn't a wealthy nation, you know, so it, it would bring tourism, it would bring financial stability to our tribe. But we are, I feel like our tribe is a traditional tribe. Like we go back to our stories and legends. And I feel like that's what um, kept that from happening was how sacred little Colorado River was and the Colorado River was that no one wanted that to happen. And so it, it didn't at that time. And the same with the little Colorado River. And that's actually the Hopis have the stronger history with Little Colorado River. And that would be going against two tribes, you know, to create something for financial gain, which again, they would promise some to us, you know, which is why people are like, oh, I don't know, it would help us. But in the long run, I feel like we always turn back to our our traditions and our culture and our tribe. And we want to preserve that because so much was already taken from us that we're just trying to preserve what's left of it, you know? Yeah, that totally makes sense. And and there are also um, environmental questions. Oh, let's yeah. put it that way. About yeah. That. Um, yeah. So on a lighter note, how does your Native American heritage and your knowledge about places um, show in connection with your hikes? I love to tell legend stories, and I love to tell stories about my grandma or other relatives that used to walk on this, you know. It's so funny because my grandma used to sheep herd, like, out in the desert, and she would walk miles, like even my mom has a kid, miles and miles. Technically, that's hiking, you know, but she's following the sheep. And just the little act of taking someone out in the desert for this little short hike, it totally brings that to me. I feel like I have a connection to my great grandma because I'm also walking these deserts as she did. It might be in a different context where I'm wearing a backpack and having a good time compared to her, like, where's my sheep, you know? But but still, that connection, it grounds me and it reminds me I'm a Navajo woman. And to share that with other people, the stories about that, I can see how they love to see that connection and also try to apply that to their lives. A lot of times I get people that say, I I don't have it, you know, an ancestral land, but by sharing mine, it gives them the knowledge to like always honor land because it did belong to someone. And because you know that you can also honor that. It didn't matter that they're not Navajo, but they also learn that respect and that honor and that um, story, you know? I feel like my Navajo heritage connects anyone I hike with and even me to the land. How do you learn the legends and the, the stories of places? Because I, I know that you don't always hike where you grew up. So you gotta, how do you find out? 
Um, I, I do a lot of research. I do a lot of reading, a lot of Googling, you know, like your first Google search probably isn't going to be accurate. So you got to dig. <laughs> but the crazy part is I'm a Native American woman. I grew up Navajo. But even my Navajo stories on the western side of my reservation won't be the same as the stories on the other side of the reservation. So no matter what, I'm educating on even my own tribal legends and stories just because some things are tweaked, you know. I was posting about a horned toad like a couple weeks ago, and a horned toad to us is called Che, which is grandpa. And I was like, why is grandpa so important? You know, like, because I've heard it all my life. And so I started asking all the the grandmas that I know. And everyone had a different story. It took research to try to figure out, wow, and that's probably why they believe that one. And that's what she was told when she was young. And a lot of times that's how all the Native American tribes are. Like a lot of their stories are just told through families, which is Nice because each family has their own story, but it's it's kind of hard when you're the one trying to figure out, well, which one is it? But really, it's all of them, <laughs> and you just got to take it all in. So I do a lot of research, a lot of reading. I feel like there's a lot of older books that Caucasians translated for a Navajo family. I've read like those kind of books, too. But yeah, a lot of questions are to my mom. And my mom's like, oh, I got to ask my mom. <laughs> and so, and I'm sure if my grandma's mom was alive, she'd ask her mom, you know. Is that your personal thing or is it a women's thing to um, to sh preserve those stories and tell those stories? Um, I think it's a cultural thing. In my culture, in Navajo culture, it really is on the women, on the moms. It's a matriarchal society so we really lean on the women to keep it alive and now after all those experiences you had with a very particular landscape red rocks and canyons and desert etc first in marble canyon where i believe you grew up right uh -huh. yeah um and and then now uh, grand canyon also What do these canyons mean to you personally, these landscapes? Um, so I feel like I'm trying to figure out how to put these in words. So I, when I was in college, I had a professor that said, you can get emotionally attached to land. And I was just like, what? <laughs> For some reason, I just, I've never heard those words for that situation. And I was just reflecting back and it dawned on me that that is so true because that's exactly how I felt about my little canyon that ran right behind my house or the red rocks. I knew my area and whenever I went out of town and I woke up and it's like, we're almost home. And it would just fill me with relief and joy because it's home, you know? And so these places just became part of me. It's like almost like a family member. And every time I would go away for long periods of times and I would come home and see just red sand or sandstone or anything like that that just was 
something of my home, I would feel relief. And it's almost like seeing an old friend, an old family member. It's amazing how you can create a home out of just the landscape. And I know that as a Native American, especially Navajo, I wasn't the only one that has this because there are many stories about when we were removed and we were forced to do the long walk and they were released and they started walking back to their homelands. And it wasn't until they saw the familiar mountains or the familiar areas that they like fell to the ground and cried because they were home, you know? And so I felt like that's what it has done to me. (laughs) It has created a place where I will always have a home and it'll always like welcome me with open arms. Yeah. I it, it it totally makes sense. I mean, um your people have lived there for thousands of years. It's not, you know, I've lived in the US for 10 years. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and 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 there are already I would say some now that I I listen to you saying that, you know, thinking about how how do I know that I'm close to home? I think there are already some indicators that I, or, or when I go back to Germany, of course there are some certain sights yeah. or feelings. So, so I, you know, I can't even imagine what that must be like if, if you come from a, such a long line of people who've been there for thousands and thousands of years and I'm, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm getting carried away, but I'm very fascinated by that. And it's, um, it makes so much sense. Yeah. Now, even if you're not from there, some landscapes are really fascinating. So that's why visitors love to come to that area and also take in the beauty of the landscape. But then again, if a lot of visitors come, usually the landscape is quickly under siege because it's just too many people. So what is your recommendation for people who maybe want to hike um, somewhere in Arizona or somewhere else, and they are aware of that and they want to do good. So what can visitors do to protect that land? Yeah, so I am one of those that want to share all the places on Navajo land that I've been because it is beautiful, and I feel like it is such a different place than so many places in the world. And so when I do share that, I do, of course, ask that they respect the area, you know, just pack your own trash away. Because a lot of things on the reservation, it's not, it's not a national park. There's not someone working and getting paid to keep it beautiful. It's all the people there that keep it beautiful. And we don't get paid to do that. So it's just a big respect that I ask everybody to have to honor it the way we honor it and keep it beautiful and clean. It's really getting to the point where when we do share a place and it does become super popular that hopefully we'll be able to make it a place like Canyon de Chez or Monument Valley. That way we can have more people there and keep it beautiful and preserved. But until that happens, it's just really an honor system of respect and 
treating it the way you would treat your home. A lot of times we want to treat it like a hotel. A hotel, you know, you don't really care for, you can trash because someone's going to clean it. But really, we ask you to treat it like it's your home. And even a step further, treat it like your church. Because that's how special and sacred it is to us. Thank you so much for enlightening me <laughs> <laughs> with all those those insights. And uh, for the listeners, I'm going to um, put some links in the liner notes so um, you can find Angel Teddyton on Instagram and also find out a little bit more about Women Who Hike and about adventurous natives so you get to read some of the stories and also see the beautiful, beautiful pictures that Angel is posting from her hikes. Thank you, Angel. Thank you. That was Angel Tadditon. Find Adventurous Natives on Instagram to learn more about her latest project. And I'll also link to her personal Instagram so you can see where she's been hiking and which Navajo stories she's been thinking of. I'll stick with the outdoors for another episode, which will feature Dr. Carolyn Finney, a cultural geographer and storyteller. So stay tuned. And if you happen to know German, try Notizen aus Amerika for a deeper dive into this topic.